I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM, the show for curious cooks and eaters. Hey, let's go grab a drink. You know, some of the best nights of my life have started with that phrase. And by best, I mean some of the most meaningful, some of the most bonding, the funniest, the wildest, you name it. Now, I don't drink alcohol. I never have, really, because my body can't take it. But I've always loved going to the bar, talking to strangers, or talking to friends I've had a hundred drinks with before. You know, it's funny because I remember when I was a kid, you know, I got my fun playing arcade games or riding my bike around a park or watching movies or whatever. And I remember once thinking, what do grown-ups do for fun? Like, they go to a bar and just sit there? And yes, that is exactly what they do. As simple as it sounds. And so this week, we are looking at the culture of drinking. We're not talking about cocktail recipes or what wines to order now. You know, we're talking about some of the ways people get together over a drink. And later in the show, we've got talk about that special moment in time that is last call in a bar. We've got an explanation of what wine writers are actually trying to do when they describe wines, the deeper side of mezcal, and what it means to love drinking and be sober curious at the same time. But first, we're going to head to Seattle for a little story about a truth serum. Mark and Brian Canlis are brothers. They are the third generation of their family to run Canlis, a nearly 70-year-old restaurant in Seattle. It's a total landmark, a place that served couples on their engagement night and then years later served their grandchildren on their engagement nights, right? But even beyond the restaurant, what is extraordinary about the Canlis family is how thoughtful they are about helping people connect. And for years, in the basement of the restaurant, they had a very special barrel of whiskey. You couldn't buy yourself a taste of it, not with money anyway. I talked with Mark and Brian in that basement to hear the stories of that whiskey. Mark Hamlins, how are you? I'm good, Brian. Hey, Francis. Thanks for coming. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So, where are we right now? <laughs> Isn't that the question? Yeah. <laughs> uh, right now, you're in a kind of a secret basement room under the restaurant that not a lot of people get to see. Uh, it feels very secretive. I mean, there is literally a, a dungeon-style door, a charming dungeon, like I, I feel a hospitable dungeon, you might say. Um, very nice plush chairs. Uh, what are those? Uh, so those are the reservation books from the 50s and 60s that are filled, nah, but are no, filled with our grandfather's cool. handwriting. It's, it's super cool. Sometimes a guest will say like, hey, you know, I'm celebrating my 50th anniversary. And we'll say like, really? I we'll come down, like, and they got married here, or they had a date here, and so we'll go find the original reservation book with their name in it from the night they came in. Or... Yeah, check this out. Date book, 1951. How cool is that? This is, wow. When we were kids, I remember, like, just the book being passed from phone to phone. Like, you never answered the Canlis phone without having the book, and seeing the reservationists take these names, and anyway, we dug them up a while back and brought them down here because we thought this was a, kind of a sacred space to keep them in, you know? Yeah. And uh, it's cool. It's cool to read through them. Sometimes, like, in the middle of a crazy night, I can't handle the floor. I love to come down here and just flip through one of them and get some perspective on 
what it is that we're doing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's just to see the old names. I don't know. I mean, the fact that people have been celebrating special occasions with your family since you're literally 1951. Yeah. And here's evidence of that. Yeah. That's I, incredible. As you can see, Sunday was blank because you couldn't, it was against the law to serve liquor on a Sunday. So our grandfather was like, well, I'm not going to open. Why would you? Why bother? Why would you? Why bother? What? What in the world would people do anyway? Eat? <laughs> Restaurant. Oh my God. Well, actually, well, speaking of liquor, uh, so the reason why I came here to meet with you guys, not just because I love your company and love the restaurant, was because um, you guys have this sort of storied barrel of whiskey, a very special barrel of whiskey. Can you tell us about it? Well, first of all, where it comes from and what makes it so special. Sure, sure. Um, maybe the best place, Brian, you could tell the story better than me, but the best place to start is with our older brother. Yeah, so Mark's the middle brother, I'm the baby brother. But our oldest brother is the black sheep of the family. <laughs> Absolutely he, uh, is. He did not go in the restaurant business. He became a pastor. <laughs> and, uh, like, like the black sheep of the candlestick factors. Uh, he became a pastor. You know. We don't talk about him anymore. Yeah. So he did that in Scotland. And uh, in his parish where he was living with his family, it was his job before they would bottle the whiskey. He'd have to go bless it. Huh. which is the role of a parish minister in Scotland. The expectation is that you would visit everyone in your parish at least once a year. Just like show up, uh, you know, unannounced. Yeah. Whether they go to your church or not, you just... It's and, what you do. And it's expected. Oh, you wow. walk the neighborhood. And you, you knock on the hi. door and they invite you in and and almost always they pour you a dram of whiskey. It's like, it's just this community. It doesn't happen obviously here very often, but it's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Anyway, he ends up, first of all, we get calls all the time, like noon his time. Not sober. He's like, I can't do this. Like, people are like, drinking me out of the table. Everyone pours me whiskey. Everyone pours me whiskey. We, we pray, you know. And, yeah. um, but but he, start, he starts to fall in love with the country and fall in love with whiskey and really starts teaching us because we would come. He was there for He's 13 years. Like the best single malt scotches in the world. When the ministry comes yeah. over, you don't just pour like some you, swill. Like, you get yeah. that one bottle. You pour right? the good stuff. And, and so he starts like teaching us about single malt scotch and we start falling in love. And so. Fast forward to the fact we all fall in love with one, our very favorite distillery in Scotland is called Springbank. It's in Campbelltown. It's kind of a forgotten region. Oh, Matt's like, no, you guys, because we used to take a brother trip. Every, like, let's yeah. just drive the teacup around, like his old Volkswagen. His old called gross called van you was called the teacup. You could see the road through the floor. It yeah. was that kind of, He's yeah. like, let's just drive around Scotland. We'll go find. So we end up at, at Springbank. The whole thing, right? Like, it's all been orchestrated, and we're, in, and we're looking to buy it. He's like, come on, we should, we should all buy a barrel together. We'll keep it. Our kids will drink it, whatever. It'll be special. Spring Break won't give it to us. They won't sell it to us. No, it I means Spring Break is one of the greatest whiskeys in the whole country. They're like, sorry, we're not going to give you a barrel. <laughs> uh, and as it turns out, even if we could buy a barrel, it's not even legal to bring barrels out of the country into the was States. That complication. So somebody reads about it. They did an article, Food Wine did an article about it about that trip. And this guy reads it and he's like, oh my gosh, I have a barrel of what you guys were tasting. I own it. It's at Springbank. You can have it. What? Like, I've heard about what you're doing at the restaurant. I've heard about the values and blah, blah, blah. And anyway, if you can get it into the country, give me a few bottles and you can have the rest. And we were like, no way. So, so we did. We did. It took a few years and we got it here. And wow. I remember the very first night, it's like we finally got the whole thing situated and we had this local billionaire in the restaurant and he's super into single malt he's like what do you got and we normally like accustomed to going down and i don't know find something special but now we had the barrel and so we sold him some and it didn't feel right and 
it to, sell, like, to sell it. Yeah, mean. because it had been gifted to us and because it came from this like brotherly tradition of being together in Scotland with our black sheep minister, you know, older brother. So um, Matt, or somebody made this suggestion, our older brother, it was like, well, why don't you do something cool with it? Like you've been given this, this gift. Like, so we have this one question when you work at Canlis. It's like the operative question that we're gonna hit you with early on in the interview and every review and every conversation when you're hiding in a secret room is like, how will working at Canlis help you become who you're hoping to become? Hmm. Like, because you've been here a year or because you've been here 10 years, who have you become? Like, not what have you become, but actually like, talk about your character, like talking about the kind of man or the kind of woman that you're becoming. Yeah, not like, oh, I want to be a sous chef next year. It's like, no, I want to. Yeah, that's what. You want to be a sous chef. I want to be a doctor. I want to be a lawyer. I want to run my own restaurant. But like, what is somebody saying at your funeral? Like, why don't we talk about the real issues, right? Because mm. that's what actually drives all of us, the stuff that matters. So we got in the practice of doing that around the barrel. We were like, well, wait a second. What if we just use the barrel as sort of this, I don't know. Catalyst. Um, catalyst, this liquid encouragement or this liquid <laughs> blessing to sort of say like, hey, um, let's talk about the real issues and then let's toast like to the courage to change, like to the courage to, to, the courage to become that thing which we all hope for. And that's, yeah. how, that's how it started. So instead of charging for it, we give it away for free to anyone with the courage to share that thing out loud. The stuff that's and like 100 or 200 bucks an ounce. I, mean, I don't know what you would sell that for. Yeah, 100 or 200 bucks an ounce, something like that. But, we gave the but for away. guests, for staff. Like, guests, staff, everyone. And, with, and then Mark staff. was giving some speech. And then we had guests that would and like fly in. And then he invited, in and invited like 1,000 people. Hey, not come, invite 1,000 people. Come, it was a river in Seattle. I come drink the barrel with tradition. me. <laughs> I was like, if anyone ever, I don't know where it was, like in Chicago or something. So like, suddenly, if anyone ends up in Seattle, come, like, come, we'll do it with you. And then like, <laughs> and then it starts spreading coming. and suddenly Which random guests are awkward. showing up and be like, I want to share around the barrel. We're like, come on down. It's the middle of service. Suddenly we're like crying around the barrel. With drinking. more strangers than you've ever. It's like, and so we started taking a journal and what people were like to record these incredible things and became a tradition with our staff and what's Christmas so interesting Eve, about it is like it just kind of grew legs of its own and it's as if people were looking for a release they were looking for a place or a way to say hey this stuff matters can we talk about it yeah you know take me to that room or take me to that sacred barrel mm -hmm. and often even with strangers these were things they had never shared with one another i was down around the barrel once and there was this family they had come here for like a rehearsal dinner um you've got both the moms and dads and then the bride to be in the, anyway and they're all sharing things that they had never said to one another you pour them each a glass and it's like hey you guys on the precipice of one of like the most memorable nights of your life here is to the practice and to the courage to change into the people you're hoping to become and it just became this thing and um i don't know i feel lucky to have that just have happened here so i know about this um tradition because i attended a dinner that you guys did in new york you know like brought your chef you yeah. brought your team you brought some mise en place your yeah. prep and you and, you, and you and did like a pop-up dinner and we bought a bottle and you brought a bottle scotch. of whiskey and you told us the story and suddenly I was sitting in this room with 20 some odd people, many of whom I'd never met before, total strangers, and we were all to a person. I remember that night. Uh, are, are Weeping, yeah. telling oh, yeah. stories. No, there were tears. Our, Our dad stories. was crying. 
Your dad was yeah, there. He was that like, was intense. <laughs> no, I remember it was risky. I remember thinking like, like oh yeah, we. I don't know. We like, sure New Yorkers think. I remember thinking like, are they going to think we're nuts or like, without lighting a fire and singing kumbaya? Like, is this going to work with a bunch of strangers? Well, and our yeah. chef was brand new, and is, so this is Brady's kind of introduction back to New York as our chef, and yeah. who he had come from New York. He came. Yeah. He came yeah. from Roberta's and Blanca, yeah. and he was like, guys, we we can't do this, <laughs> and so and then afterward, after this magical night. It was a big moment, I think, for Brady to see us for who we were as a restaurant and say, like, oh, yeah, this is, even like, all oh, of this us, is think, cool. Like, uh, guys, that was cool. Like, yeah. we know. You it, know, I, what I think is so interesting is, I think, in my mind, this whiskey is almost like a truth serum, right? <laughs> <laughs> There's something that seems special about this whiskey that you have, but really, it's not the whiskey. Right? It can't actually be about the whiskey. It was amazing whiskey. I don't drink even, but I just remember like taking a taste of it. I was like, oh, wow, it's really freaking good. But I think what it is, is something with Mark you had mentioned before. It's almost like people hold so much inside that we know we want to come back. And not in like a... It's an invitation. Yeah. I, I'm invitation. just waiting for maybe even like me to give myself permission to talk about this thing. Yeah. I and feel like all hospitality is an invitation. I, I feel like what we want Canlis to be is an invitation. And you're right. It wasn't about the whiskey. The barrel was an excuse to get there faster. It was an excuse to, to like, to have a reason to, to, to go there. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so often when we get together, we, we crave that. We like, we crave that kind of community or we crave that sort of discussion where at the end of it, you feel more known and they feel more known, and there's that intimacy that the barrel just allowed it to happen faster, yeah. you know? But it wasn't, it wasn't the barrel, it was the people. Yeah, and I think that's truly a beautiful gift. Thank you so much for telling us about it. So, so happy to. You're welcome. Mark and Brian Canlis are the third-generation owners of Canlis Restaurant in Seattle. Coming up, how we talk about wine and the deeper side of mezcal. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is the show for curious cooks and eaters. We all know someone who is, let's just say, not the best conversationalist when they start talking about wine. They probably name drop. They might use obscure terms. Frankly, sometimes they are complete bored to be around. And if you don't speak wine speak, it can seem like the whole language of wine is almost meant to keep people out. Sometimes, you know, you just want to yell at someone like, what do you mean that this is a big, bold, structured glass with notes of crushed raspberry? What does that even mean? Well, our contributor Ali Buzari went to the wine critic Esther Mobley for some answers about the madness and the method, the way we talk about wine. Hi, Esther. Hey, Ali. Thank you for coming in and chatting about wine with me. I'm so happy to be here. You have a way of speaking fluent, normal person. And I want to start by asking, do you and all of your colleagues, the, the experts of the industry, do you guys always know what each other is trying to say? Is, is there universally agreed upon words? Or 
do you guys also have moments where you're like, ah, what is what does chewy actually mean? So I think the way we talk about wine is always a kind of um, nebulous mix of science and poetry. Hmm. When we talk about perceiving a wine's acidity, we use all kinds of words to convey that sensation. Zippy, racy, um, searing. I mean, those are words that are, are kind of in the wine lexicon to convey this wine, you can perceive its acid. Sure, maybe my perception of acidity is more sensitive than yours. Uh, maybe I like more acidity in my wine than you do, so I might perceive um, a wine to be balanced with a different level of acidity. The same is true of certain flavor descriptors, where um, when we talk about a wine having a, a green pepper aroma, mm -hmm. we actually are talking about perceiving the compound pyrazine. And um, when it's present, we really are talking about perceiving that thing, and we can know what someone else means when they say that. Um, where it gets tricky is when we get into the kind of fruit salad bowl and you tell me you're talking about crushed raspberries mm -hmm. or, um, you know, the bottom side of a wet river stone. And I celebrate the possibility of coming up with a kind of poetic new way of describing something that can be evocative. But I think we might kind of lose our kind of sense of shared calibration mm -hmm. when we when we get really flowery with those words. So is there like an internal reality check, an internal balance that you try to find yourself when you are getting uh, impressionist in your description of wine that helps you stay at least grounded in your own reality and not wandering into things that just sound impressive? I struggle with this as I write um, because, first of all, I should say that writing tasting notes is a pretty small portion of what my job actually is. Mm -hmm. That being said, um, yes, uh, I think you'll read some tasting notes that are like, this wine feels like um, running through a field of daisies, or mm -hmm. this wine feels like, you know, the end of the night when your dance partner looks into your eyes and the moon is shining. I mean, actually, I think those might might help some people get in the mood, get kind of a sense of what this wine is. And of course, they're completely imprecise, completely impressionistic. Um, they're all poetry, no science. And yet, sometimes I think maybe that gets closer to a helpful thing to give a reader. I mean, I, I think sometimes, do I care if a wine has notes of um, blueberry and lavender? Or, or would I rather know, like, this is a big wine. This is a, a meaty wine. This is a, a structured wine. This wine is like, you know, kind of a, a big barrel coming at you as opposed to this is a slight wine. This wine is light on its feet. This is a subtle wine. I mean, I actually think those are the questions I would rather know if I'm choosing what to drink. Um, and yet it, it's maybe like its own kind of broken language. So let's talk about the, the science side for a second. So... So when somebody says that there are notes of lavender or apricot or coconut in a wine, it's it's kind of mind-blowing to think that that means there are actually aromas in that wine that you might find in a coconut or in an apricot or in lavender. Is that is that true? It's true 
for some descriptors that uh-huh. we use. Yes. So um, a great example is we often say that Syrah has a peppery aroma. And that might sound as silly as the wet river rock thing. However, Syrah actually has high concentrations of a compound called rotundone, which is found in, guess what, black pepper, as well as a number of herbs like uh, marjoram and oregano. I always think wine language is kind of double speak because we're using words that we know. We're using words that everybody knows. We're using words like, you know, black cherry and uh, wet cardboard. And yet we're not actually perceiving the same thing we would if we had a cherry in front of us. And I can remember um, one of my first jobs where I encountered wine was working at a wine shop in Boston. And I can remember the owner of the wine shop tasting a wine with me and being like, this smells like black cherries. And I was like, well, this doesn't actually smell like black cherries, but I know exactly what you're what mm-hmm. you're describing, what what aroma you're describing. And then you smell that in another wine and you're like, okay, well, I know to call that black cherry. So it's it's deceptive because you actually have to like learn a new meaning for words you already know. Yeah. For me, I, I talk about flavor a lot and it always starts with, like you're saying, the, the data that your nose, your tongue, your eyes, your ears, and your sense of touch are, are feeding you. And then all of your memories and baggage yeah. and things like that. Yeah. Um, let's go into a couple of those. So one of the first ones that I want to talk about is tannins. What actually are tannins and where do they come from? So tannins are texture. And if, if I recall correctly, um, tannins are actually like making you salivate, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're drying your mouth out. Why is it a good thing in wine? What, is it, what does it do for us? Well, um, like everything, there, there can be too much tannin and it can certainly be out of balance. Um, and tannins are really only a thing when we talk about red wine for the most part, hmm. because white wines are um, essentially fermented without their skins mm-hmm. so and seeds, so they don't get that contact with them that would give them the tannins. Um, tannins are structure, and hmm. structure is um, one of the kind of key things that we should be talking about more when we talk about wine. Um, but you know, tannins are what give the wine shape, what give it some give. You know, it's not just juice that's like flowing through your mouth. It actually lingers in certain parts of your mouth and and stays there. The The kind of conventional wisdom is that tannins make a wine pleasant to eat with something fatty. Mm-hmm. So that's why a, a bold Cabernet and a steak are considered like a perfect pairing because the fattiness of a big cut of beef kind of gets refreshed by the astringency of the tannins. And a lot of wines that that have a kind of aggressive tannic profile are are really unpleasant to drink when they're young, hmm. like Barolo, for instance. Barolo, which is from Piedmont in Italy, Nebbiolo grape, um, a really young Barolo can just be like, ah, I mean, I think we've probably all had a wine where you take a sip and your mouth is just so dry Mm -hmm. and it's unpleasant. Um, But over time, it mellows, it softens. Um, The tannins can take on different kinds of sensations. They can become silky. Mm -hmm. They can become what we call Mm -hmm. fine-grained. They can become supple. And velvety, I mean, that can be a really pleasant, beautiful sensation in your mouth. You've mentioned structure and big, um, and that's that's a thing I'm used to seeing on um, wine lists as things being described as big and bold and like, what is big? Where does big come from? So I think, right, I mean, it's it's a vague term that can um, incorporate a lot of different things. I think primarily big uh, can be a factor of weight. Is, mm. is, it a, is it a full-bodied wine? Is it a weighty wine? 
A Pinot Noir versus a Syrah. Uh-huh. A Pinot Noir is lighter bodied. Uh, it's kind of a smaller wine mm-hmm. than a Syrah typically. Um, you can see if it's translucent in the glass versus opaque. Um, but also you can just feel, I mean, the thing people would tell you in like an introductory wine class is on your tongue, does it feel like you're you're sipping water, mm. milk, or heavy cream? Oh, so there's there's viscosity. There's like thickness differences. Yeah, yeah. Do you have categories that that you go to or that you refer people to if they're just trying to pick their way through and they know a couple things that they like and they know a couple of wines that they've hated? How do you recommend people organize their mind when trying to figure out what wine to drink? I really try to give a couple of guidelines to the person who's helping me because the sommelier, the restaurant or the person at a wine shop really knows what's there. Last night I was at a wine bar and I... First of all, I just walked in and I said, I want something cold. But what <laughs> That's what, amazing. But I just have to say that I feel so validated that that is <laughs> a, a emotion that you would express. That completely. I feel seen. But I, I think I I think what I mean when I and I say that a lot is, you know, I, I mean, I want a white wine mm-hmm. probably, but I want something refreshing in that moment. Um, I want something probably high in acid, not super oaky, um, fruity. So what I, the kinds of things I'd say if I'm at a restaurant, uh, I'll say, okay, we, we want a light-bodied red. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we want it more on the savory side than the fruity side. Mm-hmm. That's that's a directive I would give. Or uh, I'm looking for a white kind of medium in body, and I'd love some kind of minerally component. I mean, that's a vague term too. But what I'm meaning there is I don't want something that's just like as zippy and tangy as a New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. I don't want something as rich as an oaky, buttery Chardonnay. I want something that somewhere falls in the middle. And I mean, Hmm. I think the great myth is that people think if you really know about wine, you'll just be able to point to a bottle on the list. Hmm. And no one, I mean, occasionally I might do that if I see a wine I know and I really like. But to me, the greater fun is to ask for some help so that I can discover something new. Esther, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks so much, Ali. Esther Mobley covers the California wine, beer, and spirits beat for the San Francisco Chronicle. And Ali Buzari is the author of Ingredient, Unveiling the Essential Elements of Food. If you step into, like, a cool cocktail bar today, 10 to 1, they have... Drinks on the menu made from mezcal. It's a Mexican spirit with this intense, roasted, smoky flavor. But even just a decade ago, barely anyone in America had heard of it. You could call it the hot new thing in bartending, except that it's hundreds of years old. And in Oaxaca, it's much more than a drink. Bricia Lopez, who's been called the mezcal queen of Los Angeles, is here to talk about it. Hola, Bricia. (laughs) Hola, Francis. Okay, so we know mezcal tastes incredible, so unique. But I sometimes hear people talk about it almost like it's a spiritual thing. Is that is that right? Yes. You know, I think that is what really differentiates mezcal a lot from every other spirit. It's this mm. connection that it gets to people, right? And when you meet someone for the first time who's been to Oaxaca and has experienced this spiritual buzz, per se, in Oaxaca... <laughs> 
it's always the same story or similar stories, right? I went to Oaxaca, I went to the Palenque, I met the maker, we were we were talking to each other, we were sipping mezcal, and it was almost like I elevated into a different realm, and I didn't, huh. you know, and it opened my mind to so many other things, and I hear it from so many different people that visit Oaxaca or from people who have had their first experience with mezcal. And it really doesn't surprise me. And, you know, and, and yes, I think that there is a sense that some people over romanticize it. But I, I, I can't help but believe that it really has something to do with with where mezcal came from and the traditions it holds and really what weaves people together. You know, mezcal was for a very long time. It still is in many parts of Oaxaca, almost like a healing agent. It was used primarily by women, by these healers um, called curanderas in the towns of Oaxaca and the small villages. And these women, you you would go to them, right? Um, And it, it usually has something to do with curing some sort of childhood trauma within you and they call it susto in Spanish or aire. There's something to do with air and you being scared as a child. Um, But you come, you you can come at any age really, but you know, typically I remember the first time I had my first cleansing of susto, I must have been 12 maybe okay. um, and they bring you into this room and there's they're, they're this, there's this woman who has a cantaro which is this bowl made out of red clay and she has copal burning and she puts copal in the smoke around you and then she takes a sip of mezcal um, and she spits into your back and in that in that moment, it's meant to release a lot of spirits that don't belong inside of you. And she dips herbs in mezcal and cleanses your body, you know. And it was a way for for you to be healed. Also, it was used among women uh, after giving birth to drink a little bit of mezcal to kind of help their body relax and um, rub mezcal um, in their temples and the back of their neck. And you know that saying that's very famous now here in the U.S. Para todo mal mezcal y para todo bien también, which really means for everything that's going wrong, have mezcal, and for everything that's going great, have mezcal. <laughs> and I kid you not that if you and but I think that has to do a lot with both things, right? With you being cured of something and also celebration. And mezcal mm-hmm. was really, really like. I think that at the essence of it, it's a communal drink. And I think a lot of spirits are, but I think mezcal more than any of them. You know, the idea of sitting down and, you know, drinking mezcal by yourself uh, isn't isn't very popular. Mezcal is to be shared with your community. Yeah. Mezcal is to be shared with the town when people come, you invite someone to a wedding or uh, it's mostly weddings. It's a lot of mezcal to be drank in weddings. Or when somebody even passes away, you know, you bring your mezcal as an offering to the dead. But when you're getting married, you bring your mezcal as an offering to the living and sharing the best that you've produced. There's a lot of community building surrounding mezcal. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that spirit still lives inside mezcal. It's what people are experiencing today, especially when you go to Oaxaca. But even as an outsider, when you come to this place, and like, because you said in the beginning that you hear people all the time tell you, oh my God, I went and had mezcal and I felt like I was, you <laughs> yes. know, something was happening. Um, I mean, is it something in the drink itself? Is there, you know, something about it that does something to you? Or do you think it's just sort of, like you say, in the air, in the culture, and you just kind of fold yourself into it when you're there? You know, I, 
I truly believe that, you know, we are connected to Mother Earth. And I, I truly believe that there's a deeper connection that we all have to the world, right? Um, I, I don't know if it was my upbringing in Oaxaca, me growing up with these women who were healers and just understanding the connection between earth and body and spirit. But I, I can't help but believe that when you're walking through this beautiful soil and you're walking through these plants that take seven, 10, 20 years sometimes to grow and really capture mm-hmm. all the minerals from the earth, it it should capture that essence and spirituality as well. And, you know, when you think about an agave being a woman and coming from a female spirit, I think that's what makes it so powerful. You know, the plant is female. The plant does have children. And that essence gets roasted and enhanced and you can't help but really fall in love with the process and story and when you drink it I think that really really manifests in your body and the way you feel when you drink it well I don't even drink and now I just want to go and like maybe be... I'm a romantic too <laughs> <laughs> I want to go be with the mezcal now <laughs> and yes I think you can be and, and but you know I just why I always tell people you know if you if you've had mezcal here in the US um, and if you like it you like the flavor make it a point to visit Oaxaca make it a point to have this experience with where it's being made where it's being produced with the farmers I, I met a, a producer that just changed my perception of what a mezcal producer is and should be labeled as. But he told me that he hated fancy titles. And he said, I don't want to be named a mezcal producer, a mezcal master. I'm a farmer. I am with the mm-hmm. land. My hands touch the soil. My hands, you know, uh, it's not even about cutting the plant, but, you know, I sacrifice this to make this product that allows me to keep my family's heritage and history alive. And that passion has to come back in whatever they make, right? And then it's got that passion yeah. comes back and you're able to, it's the same thing that happens when you eat. And I think that's, it's like that movie, like Water for Chocolate. It, it's the, it, it really resembles that, right? It's how you feel when you cook. It's really that energy lives inside your food in your drink yeah that's beautiful thanks so much Bricia oh you're welcome anytime Bricia Lopez is the owner with her family of Gelaguetza restaurant in Los Angeles and her book is called Oaxaca home cooking from the heart of Mexico you can find recipes for some of her favorite mezcal cocktails at splendatable.org coming up welcome to the age of being sober curious I'm Francis Lamb and this is the Splendid Table from APM I'm Francis Lamb, and this is the show for curious cooks and eaters. Maybe you did a dry January this year, or maybe you know someone who did. Maybe you know people who are sober, whether or not they're in recovery. Or maybe you've heard people jokingly say they're sober curious. There's a growing movement of people who are choosing to not drink alcohol, or at least to moderate it. And while on the surface, that can sound like a pretty simple thing, it's like, okay, beer or no beer, it can actually get pretty complicated pretty quick. Jordana Rothman and Julia Bainbridge are food and drink writers and editors who've tracked and, frankly, helped make trends all over the country. The two of them have spent a lot of time in bars, restaurants, and parties, deep in the culture of drinking, and both have recently started to think about the culture of not drinking. Julia's just written a book called Good Drinks about non-alcoholic beverages, and Jordana met up with her 
to talk about some of those good drinks and about how they feel about their own states of sobriety. Okay, so I feel like I want to start in a place that we've sort of always started in this mm-hmm. conversation, which is language. Um, you know, you and I have discussed so many times that the language leaves this giant gap for people who will have a drink but are not drinkers, people who are um, sober curious. I'm making giant air quotes <laughs> right now because I think, at least for me, that that word really doesn't uh, feel like it necessarily fits. Um, you know, I, I don't drink very much, mm-hmm. but I am not sober. And I feel that the word sober is pretty loaded. Um, you know, it indicates a larger narrative that I don't necessarily feel is appropriate for me to claim. And at the same time, I feel like some of the language, like I'm a moderate drinker, almost overstates the extent to which I drink. And so I feel like there's this gap in the language. Like I don't have a word for what I am. Yeah. I guess what strikes me about the sober curious thing is I think it's just important to be careful about lumping that in with those in recovery, lumping those two into one category, right? So perhaps the paradigm will be shifted um, to a point that this isn't a thing. Drink, don't drink, whatever. Like no need for a label or a dedicated dry month or whatever. Um, But while I appreciate that some people are choosing a sober lifestyle, it's important to remember that sobriety has likely been painful for those with substance use disorders. Um, They make a hard decision every day to stay the course and usually have to engage in multiple forms of treatment. Um, it's a lot of work, you know. So I think people in recovery would like that to be acknowledged. That's not exactly what you're talking about. No, I, I, I think I think that's right there. I yeah. think that the the reason what I'm responding to and maybe um, a little bit more obliquely is exactly that, which is that, you know, to use that word to describe what for me is not actually a very hard choice or a decision that I make every day feels um, feels inappropriate. You know, but I, at the same time, I, I sort of acknowledge that this is a movement and limitations of language are what they are. And if that's sort of like the best we've got going right now, then, you know, maybe it captures something for this moment. And I hope that, you know, we'll find something better as a culture in yeah. the years to come. I mean, for what it's worth. So I, I do think there's that issue with the sober curious term, the sort of cuteness of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but uh, I've seen very few people take issue with the term sober being used. Um, by people who aren't in recovery. Oh, okay. Um, so as for myself, I don't use any terms really. Um, it's tricky because I'm writing about this stuff. And while I'm not drinking, so I'm sober if we're going to be technical, right? Like sober just means not drinking, substance-less or free from substance. That said, I don't put a label on myself and it feels jarring when other people put that label on me because it makes me feel like there isn't room for mistakes and Mm -hmm. complication uh, for the journey, which is really the reality of this thing. I think this applies to the word alcoholic too, right? Like um, it keeps the focus on a label as opposed to an individual relationship with alcohol. So we're talking about words and language as it sort of relates to identity and sort of personal reckoning and relationship to sobriety. in restaurants, I feel like this is also something that that is a place where I just feel like I've observed so many stumbles. Um, yeah. So how do you feel about the way that restaurants handle this language question? I mean, look, the good thing is people are trying to come up with something to replace mocktail. 
um, which while it's effective and it's simplicity and, and everybody knows what that means when you say it, feels juvenile, right? Like, and, and it implies that the drink is a lesser version of the real thing, which is a cocktail with alcohol in it. So I appreciate the effort and we haven't settled on something that feels correct yet, but um, my approach has been to perhaps defiantly call them drinks. <laughs> and that it wouldn't be fair in a bar, of course, right? Because patrons deserve clarity. Um, but think about when people make plans with each other to get a drink. It's assumed that that drink means an alcoholic one and that you're meeting in a bar. And I guess my intent is to subvert that a little bit. Um, people don't drink for all kinds of reasons. And those reasons just don't need to be a part of the conversation. Um, Alcohol's the only drug you have to justify not taking. <laughs> you know, um, that needs to change. Okay, so speaking of non-alcoholic beverages, there has definitely been an uptick in new products that are sort of filling this space. And I wonder what are some of your favorites and sort of what is your general feeling about these products that feel like in some ways they're measured uh, in their goodness according to like how much they replicate the real thing. Right. Okay, a quick list of some of my favorite stuff. For non-alcoholic beer, athletic brewing, delicious stuff. Um, one quote-unquote spirit that I wish were accessible in the states, and we're gonna see things are gonna become more and more available here. I don't know how you pronounce it, but it's called Gnista, um, uh, G-N-I-S-T-A. Um, that is really, really a delicious. Uh, it's the first non-alcoholic spirit that I have drunk on its own in a glass, not mixed in with something else. Um, and Seedlip is available everywhere and really is a good product. I mean, Ben Branson, who's the maker, really blew open this space. Um, it's a sort of botanical-driven uh, substance. I think it sort of <laughs> came onto the market as like a non-alcoholic gin. Well, they don't call themselves that, but many bartenders have been using it that way. There are three sort of flavors in the range, and the first is called Garden, and it does have some of those ginny notes, and mm -hmm. so that's how bartenders have been using them. And look, you know, these products have real value, right? Like bartenders and home bartenders can lean on them to make more interesting non-alcoholic drinks, which is what I'm all about. But um, should we call them spirits? Like, should we call it wine? You know, they're not spirits and they're not wine. And the transformations that make these things what they are are predicated on alcohol being produced. And I understand why those terms are used. It communicates to a consumer how this product is meant to be used, but but it's worth thinking about. You know, it's, it's funny. I I bristle less at non-alcoholic beer, and this makes no sense, right? Like, I mean, perhaps the only thing I can think of is because it's gotten legitimately good. You know, like de-alcoholizing normal beer, which is a process that really, like, affects flavor in a bad way. Um, that was a method of choice until recently, and, and people like um, Bill at Athletic Brewing have been playing with the process in a way that is resulting in, in better products than ever. I won't get nerdy about the process right now, but, um, you know, I think wine will be the next thing. There aren't many good non-alcoholic wines out there, um, perhaps because there aren't enough people trying, right? Like, perhaps because it's such a commitment. Like, you know, athletic spears, I'm not paid by them, I promise. I just really love athletic spears, I keep mentioning. <laughs> you know, they're a two-week turnaround, right? Like, with wine, there's a longer aging and fermentation time. There's a seasonal harvest as opposed to access to water, hops, barley, and yeast. Um, you would have to devote some of your tanks to the non-alk wines, which would ultimately sell for less than the regular ones. So it just hasn't been economically viable. Um, but as this alcohol-free space grows and consumers want more of it, perhaps it will be. Like it just needs people to thoughtfully approach it rather than taking a full-strength wine and like blasting it through uh, an industrial de-alcoholization machine. So we'll see. Yeah. 
Julia, thank you so much for your insights and for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Julia Bainbridge is host of the Lonely Hour podcast, and her book is called Good Drinks, for those who aren't drinking for whatever reason. Jordana Rothman is a food writer and editor and co-author of the book, Tacos, Recipes and Provocations. You can find her on Instagram, at Jordana Rothman. I don't know if there are any songs written about the moment a bar opens for the night, but there are plenty of them dedicated to the moment before it closes. Last Call isn't just a public service announcement. It isn't just a call to action. Hey, get another drink or get out of here. It's a ritual. It's an intimacy. It's the moment the night changes, according to Brad Thomas Parsons, who staked out dozens of bars across the country to write his new book called Last Call. And he's here to tell us what he saw after so many late nights. Hey, Brad, great to have you in, man. Oh, thanks, Francis. It's really good to be here. So you uh, visited 80 bars while writing this book, and you shut down a whole bunch of them. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So you write about Last Call as being a special moment that not everyone's privy to. Why do you say that? Well, I think there's the public-facing Last Call in terms of you're at a bar, it's time to go. And sometimes that's as simple as Last Call, you're taking your last drink. It's a little more exciting when there's a ritual involved, like at Kimball House in Decatur, Georgia. They Someone scampers up a ladder and brings down this toy antique xylophone <laughs> that says, uh, and it has the print lyrics to how the refrain, How Dry I Am, which is made famous from the Chuck Jones um, Sniffles the Mouse cartoon when the mouse gets a little tipsy. It's kind of this drunkard's lament. And someone plays the xylophone and the staff sings. And sometimes the guests are like, what is going on right now? (laughs) And others are part of the action. Um, But I think from the bartender's perspective, it's the first time the night where maybe they can actually connect with someone on a personal level beyond serving them drinks and ringing up tabs and checking the music and cleaning the bathrooms. So it's it's time to like acknowledge that person that's there. Um, There's a big sense of community in um, going to a bar and bartenders are sort of uh, stewards to that journey. And if you're a guest, your night ends, you go find something else to do, you go home, you grab a bite to eat. But that bartender is still there for another few hours, two, you know, one to three hours at least. And they were on all night, you know, um, they're sort of ringmasters too, where they mm-hmm. are performing in a sense, like they're giving their all, you know, it's, 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 it's a role they're playing. But just like an actor after performance, you're buzzing with adrenaline and and, and you have all this energy and you've also absorbed the energy of the night from all your guests. And that's, again, good or bad. And so you have to decompress. But some bartenders I spoke with, I remember like a friend, Damon Bolte, a Brooklyn bartender at a Grand Army bar. He talks about it's a very special sort of twilight period of time Mm. of these waves of, you know, the evening is in waves, undulating waves of energy. And last calls that final sort of, you know, um, wave coming over, but it's very calming. But, you know, you're counting the money, you're maybe having a drink with the staff. Um, many bartenders, you know, do drink during service uh, moderately, some not so moderately, but ideally, you know, they'll have a little shift drink or a, a shot, something to to mark the end of the evening. Um, there's there's also cues, you know, the music shifts. You know, I, I see. I did hear a lot of Tom Waits late at night, where they switch it up, and that's sort of can be a little bit of a cliche. But they put on 
Tom Waits or they'll put on Willie Nelson Stardust, just something that sort of you would never play normally during service. Uh, other bartenders I talk to like to work in silence. So like just they've heard so much noise all night. Mm. But but hearing what people did was very different than if I'd written this book many years ago where you would imagine a party, party, party sort of I was, I was say, atmosphere. Like, Think, things have, uh, there still happens, trust me, but it, it, there was a lot of more contemplation. And so I was mm. surprised to see so much thoughtfulness happening um, at that hour of the night. It's that, you know, night worker kind of thing where the world's going on around you. And then you think, you know, these these men and women are going back home at four or five in the morning and then just doing it all over again. So it's a different kind of life cycle, but being privy to that time that most civilians uh, don't have access to was pretty special. Yeah. So do you see like the more hard partying side of Last Call changing in the industry? I talked to bartenders from around the country and the younger bartenders obviously had a lot more energy, a lot more um, what's going to happen next, where's the party. Um, but there's a lot of people in their 30s and 40s that are are still partying hard, so to speak. But I think, you know, um, the restaurant industry and the bar industry has had a reckoning like a lot of other industries in terms of wellness and um, harassment and taking care of yourself mentally and physically. Mm. Um, A lot of drink conferences these days, um, the panels went from, you know, spirit education to mental education. You're dealing in an industry that's selling a vice, you know, liquor and it's a lot of responsibility. So I think it's a welcome thing. But that being said, um, it is still about fun. It's people, most people go to bars to have a little fun and the bartender helps with that. So yeah. I think there's a, a welcome mindfulness and kind of codes of conduct that have always been there in many bars, but you see more universally now. Yeah, It's like we're having fun, but we're growing up too. Exactly. Thanks so much, Brad. Thank you, Francis. Brad Thomas Parsons' latest book is called Last Call. And that is our last call for the week. We'll talk to you next week. Our show is produced by APM, American Public Media, and is listener-supported listening, supported by you. So thank you so much. You can listen to all our podcasts, The Splendid Table, Weeknight Kitchen with Melissa Clark, and Splendid Table Select. Get them on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also get our weekly email, Weeknight Kitchen. We deliver recipes straight to your inbox every Wednesday to make your dinner time a little easier. Sign up at SplendidTable.org. Our show comes together with the help of our terrific team, Jenny Lukey, Jennifer Russell, Erica Romero, Chip Walton, and Sally Swift. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is APM, American Public Media.